their roles and responsibilities, right? Job descriptions, task checklists, putting those together, make it a part of the culture. You see this in your job description? You're supposed to make 50 phone calls a day as a salesperson. 50 phone calls a day. Because 50 is an important number for us to hit our target of 200 a week. So what happens is when you go and you're going to buy a house or refinancing a house or a loan on that house, typically what we do is, you know, banks need an appraisal to determine, you know, how much the collateral of that loan is worth to make the loan on. So how much that house is worth, how much they can lend you uh, in accordance with their lending guidelines. We provide that solution for them nationally. So a lot of times banks are online, mortgage companies are online, they lend in multiple states and uh, all across the country, and they need like a one-stop solution for their appraisal services, which we provide for them. So is it the banks that have to go to you? Is it, let's just take it, you know, say there's someone who's listening, they're 30 years old, they're about to buy a house. Do the banks go ahead and call you when they need appraisal for a loan or how does it work out? We contract directly to the banks to get a appraisal done. This has nothing to do with a person buying a house directly in the sense of we're not hired on your behalf. We're hired on the bank's behalf. So the bank's hiring us to do the appraisal on your house to see if uh, they're willing to lend you the money to buy it. Uh, so it's, it's an independent third party. How long have you started business and can you tell us how old you are? Uh, so I'm 32 years old and I've had it for for about 10 years now. Sure. So was it straight out of college you started getting into appraising? So actually, it's an interesting story where my, my dad was an appraiser. Um, and I was in college, kind of part-time-ish. I was on the football team and was much more interested in going into the business side. I did, you know, I kind of figured out I wasn't going to go to NFL and kind of really had that conversation with myself. And then school was always just so boring outside of, you know, athletics or outside of some of the classes I really liked. And so I really was just decided, okay, well, you know, there was a downturn in the market. This was right in the middle of the crisis. They were reorganizing the mortgage market as a whole. And I just saw an opportunity to get in our own business as an appraiser. And so I started soliciting as an appraiser, uh, just as a salesperson, okay? Not even actually doing the appraisals, just as a salesperson. And was very quickly able to get a whole bunch of clients and then hired some appraisers while I got my license. And then I went and got my license, kind of took off from there. So, I mean, when you're getting out of school, you weren't an appraiser yet, but you're basically hiring appraisers to make an appraisal firm? Kind of, yeah, kind of, kind of. I understood the solicitation part. So I understood how to, I understood how to go get business. Mm. So to me, it was never a hard part, which was the a hard part for uh, a lot of people to do. They, you know, they, they, it was just never difficult for me to do it. And so I figured, okay, well, I can just go do that and get business because the market was down in general. And I knew a lot of these guys and it just sort of worked. Why don't you tell us like from step one, that's kind of where we want to get started as far as how did you know you were good at that? What were you doing? So if someone was in your exact same shoes, can you just kind of walk us through your story? So when I I was younger. I in the summer would go with my dad to solicit because he was in a, he was a like kind of a real estate agent ish, uh, and then an appraiser. He was more more kind of like an overall real estate guy. Would help you do an appraisal, sell some houses, and do those type of things. And so my whole summer growing up, I would go with him in the car to solicit. And so I had a really good understanding of how to do it just inherently uh, growing up. And so my brother is very good at it as well. When uh, it was just something to where it was just kind of like a part of the deal. 
Like it was just like we grew up with the idea that you're going to go out there and solicit and make sales. And it was just something. Uh, so when I actually got recruited into a company, which was interesting for like a month or a couple months called Primerica, I don't know if you ever heard of it, uh, when I was still in college and they had some sales training stuff that you would go through that I did really well at. And it was sort of like, you know, everybody was kind of like, well, how are you so good at this? Why are you not afraid of talking to people? You know, why are you not afraid of going in and, and talking to people randomly or having those kind of awkward conversations that you need to have when you're marketing? And it was just something that we kind of, I overcame when I was younger. I didn't even know it. And when you're saying you're going to solicit business, so were you just walking into a bank and saying, hey, we'll do your appraisals? Yeah. So no, what I did is, you know, obviously when you're selling, you have to have a core value proposition that you're selling. The, the core value prop was that we were local, that you could call me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that we had good appraisers that worked for us, and that we'd take care of your stuff right away. So I ran like a business from the start with the idea of, you know, what would happen in the beginning. I made up this system, you know, similar to like when I used to work out when I was playing football. You know, I had like a checklist of, okay, did I do my reps? Did I do my sets? Did I do my, you know, bench press or did I do my running? And I would check it off every day to make sure I did what I was kind of supposed to do that day. Well, what I did was, is, is with the appraisal business, I did the same thing. So I, I said, okay, well, I want to go see five old people that I already know that are contacts that I knew for some, somehow, some way. I remember I met them at an MBA event. Maybe I met them at a cocktail hour and I met them at a happy hour. Or maybe I would, there were a real estate agent that I knew from a list. Thing, uh, that I did the appraisal for. Uh, and then we got along when I was there or one of my guys did or something. I would I'd reach out to five of those old people a day. And then what I would do is do five new people. And I would just go on websites and you know email five random people from you know in the mortgage industry or go to LinkedIn and just email five random people. And then I'd call five random people as well, different people. And then I'd send five thank you notes and then five packages. So actual like, you know, like whether I'm sending you like sunglasses or you know, we used to have these coasters that I still send out. Uh, and I do that seven days a week for like three years. Set like seven days a week. So that like super consistent. And then what happens is when you do that over time, you just start building a lot of momentum because nobody does it. Uh, most people aren't that consistent. And so I did that for, you know, for two months with really kind of no results. Uh, every day. And then after about two months, because when you really think about it, if you're doing five times five, you know, times seven times four times two, that's 1400 points of contact over the two months period that you did. And then we started picking up momentum. And then I've just, you know, we just never stopped since. Now we have, we make, you know, three, 400 phone calls a day to people soliciting for business. So how big is the company today? And can you tell us about revenue and employee count? We'll do, uh, last year we did 24 million in revenue. Um, we'll do probably 30-ish this year. Um, market's down a little bit, but our margins are better. So it's just kind of a, a bittersweet a little bit and we've gotten over some technology developments and stuff so it's a better year but it's a not the kind of not the growth we would want but it's so how much did you make your first year? Uh, the first year, I really don't even know. Do uh, you have an estimate? Because I'm just trying to see the growth. Do you know where it happened? So. The first year, we probably did 100000 in revenue, 200000 in revenue. Mm, right. And that was just all you basically? That was just all me. Yeah, that was just all me. It's been pretty much me doing sales up until about two years ago, where we were able to get additional salespeople. Because uh, the sale is, a, is, a, is it takes a couple months to get the sale, and it's you got to be kind of crafty and you got to be really on top of it to get it. So it's taken some while, but we have good people in there. How do you get paid by those sales that you're talking about? So we negotiate. So what happens is is we negotiate a fee with the appraiser, localized 
knowledge beforehand. And you're talking about because y'all don't do these straight appraisals anymore. Is that right? You made a transition? We do sometimes. We okay. do sometimes. We have some appraisers that we do straight, but most of them are contract. So we just take, you know, similar to the way that, you know, the real estate industry works where you refer a listing to another agent, you take a broker split. We just essentially do that. You're putting it out and give it to other appraisal firms? Yeah, we will we will localize it, right? So right. so you think about, you know, if I'm a bank I have a national need. Well, there's very few companies. There's no companies that can do appraisals nationally because they're so localized, right? A appraiser might only cover half a county. Mm-hmm. So if I'm doing appraisals in the state of Florida, I need like 200 appraisers to cover the whole state. Well, they're not going to manage that, right? And all of them are a little different. Some do purchases, some do... Re- it's no different than hiring you know, a contractor to come and fix your house. Well, somebody can fix your roof, somebody can fix your siding, somebody can fix your driveway. And so we, we have all that for them. And so, and even in the very first year, is that the way you were doing it? Or I guess you had hired an appraiser? Because I, I want to talk about that first year and kind of growing to where you've gone today, like that first and second year, those transitions that you had to make. Because sending it out for two straight months without any feedback, you know, trying to get clients, although you did the numbers for us, and which is what an appraiser does, right? Uh, but uh, to put out that many and try to get that many contacts and not get anything back would be seem like frustrating for some people. Yeah, no, it, it is frustrating. And so what, 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 what happens is most people don't realize is that it takes a while to mature a value proposition that, that makes sense with the market. And so a lot of times, a lot there's people that have really good ideas, but the, the idea is not mature enough yet and hasn't been worked enough yet to where you're resonating with the value with the market. And so that two months is really just about finding something that resonates with the market and then just trying to speed up the failure process so that I'm able to figure out, all right, well, this actually makes sense. People respond to this. People are responding to my emails. People are responding to the the marketing material. People are responding to the value prop. And then you just kind of run with that. But it takes a little bit of time. And we didn't get no responses. It's just not real traction, right? right? You want to get real traction rather than like muscling it. You know what I mean? If you ask a thousand people, you know, randomly, you know, to give you a dollar, Right. Well, that's you would eventually find somebody that just says yes. Right. But that's not there's a completely different than saying, okay, I have a sustainable way of doing it. Right. And you keep bringing up value proposition for someone who doesn't know what one is. Could you tell us and what is your or was your value proposition, at least at the time when you started? So whenever and this gets missed, you know, when you're selling a service, you're kind of selling the invisible. And so what people don't realize is that ultimately your sale when you're doing a service or website or technology or, you know, a podcast, right, whatever it is, is a product itself, Okay, and that product needs to be packaged and designed and needs to be sold. You know, just like the way a iPhone is sold, just like the way a, a movie is sold, just like the way a picture is, you know, any, anything that would be sold. And so your kind of core value proposition is something to where you could say to yourself, okay, if I'm buying that, right? So, so Austin, I'm buying, when I decide to listen to your podcast, I'm buying this. And whether it's free or whether it's paid for or whether it's whatever, whether it's just time involved, ultimately I'm, I'm purchasing something. And then what that, what is that? What am I purchasing? And then with the service, most people don't do a good job of defining that so that when you call and pick up the phone or when somebody answers the phone from your calling, ultimately they're buying something. And so I spent time defining finding that. And so that when somebody interacts with the company, they're buying what they were sold. 
right? Which is, you know, we monitor, you know, percentage of time we pick up the phone, we monitor our email responses, we monitor, you know, uh, basically everything right now. Beginning, it was about speed. So in the beginning, in 2003, four, five, six, uh, everyone wanted speed. So they wanted the appraisal fast. They wanted it right away. They wanted it. They wanted you to get back to them right away. The laws were looser then. And so, you know, uh, they wanted to know if the value wasn't coming in at the purchase price before the appraisal was turned in. Uh, they so far as 2008 outlawed that. So now you just turn it in. But they wanted all that. And so you sort of like, OK, you do your market research by asking people, you know, how what currently is going on in the market, what they don't like about their current solution provider, what they like most about it. And then you kind of come up with, okay, I'm just going to address these. So I'm going to have, I'm going to do a mandatory call before the appraisal comes in below the purchase price. I'm going to address these. I'm going to be the fastest person to pick up the phone. I'm going to be always known for picking up my phone because that's a big pain point, right? And so whatever service industry you're in, it's there is something there that you can figure out. And then you just got to design the company around that. So you're measuring what they consider to be good, right? So if it's speed, you're measuring speed. If it's accuracy, you're measuring accuracy. If it's, you know, if it's... Uh, happiness, you're measuring happiness. And that's how your people are incentive. Right. So at first it was speed, have you transitioned? And what would you say the other ones are? If you said accuracy. So it's, it's still speed now, but it, the speed has changed. Um, now they're more focused on, you, you know, your technology speed, you know, so you kind of go up a level, right? Where, you know, at first it's, you know, the speed of how fast you can turn the appraisals in. And then they realize that, well, it's not the speed of which they turn them in that's important because you you obviously, you know, haste makes waste so that the faster you turn something in, the more likely there'll be errors, right? So they figure that out. We figure that out. So then you say, okay, well, it's not necessarily speed, it's due dates. So I want my files on time. You know, I want to make sure that my files are on time, that, uh, you know, every time, you know, you hit my SLA. And then the next one is, okay, I want to make sure your technology. So I have 50 appraisals to order at the same exact time. And I need a very fast system, you know, so it's always about speed. Just to, it's just that the, what, what, what they're looking for changes. And then you start adding as the business gets more complex and larger and you start selling to people that are more sophisticated. Your now value out proposition has to be addition. So it's like, great. Now you can pick up the phone. You can call people back. You can do that. But most big companies, so most big companies can do that already. Like most companies, the reason that they're big is because they're fast, efficient, effective, right? You know, you can say what you want to, okay, well, the, the mom and pop is, you know, more intimate, which is generally true, but they're not necessarily running a business. They just, they're just there, you know, doing their job every day, which is a part of that business, but they're not teaching people to do that. And so what we, what, what happens is, and what we've done is just say, hey, here's the core value prop. And then what needs to be added so that when we go to, you know, uh, the number one lender in the country, they want what we already have because we've researched the market and know what they're looking for, right? We, we kind of know the pain points. And sometimes they don't even know what they're looking for, right? So they wouldn't know, like we, we filed a patent for a fee calculator. Like nobody knew that we needed to make a fee calculator. But there were some regulations that came out that basically stated that, you know, you have to make an exact quote for an appraisal site and scene, right? So you look at something like that and it's a simple little regulation, but it causes a big pain in the butt. It's like if I gave you quotes for a deck and I said, I need to know how much it's going to cost 
for a deck in the state of Texas and I need one flat fee, right? And you can imagine you could come up with a price, you know, 5,000, but there's going to be some decks that cost $50,000 that are on mountains or something, you know, or, or really small ones that cost $2,000 that are little patio type. And so that's essentially the regulation required that AMCs come up with that. Well, that just didn't make any sense. And so we kind of figured out a way to do a quote. And uh, now we have an online calculator that like all these lenders use that is free. And it's interesting. Could you just tell us about like growing the business? Because we're more interested in like the hurdles you had to overcome, maybe not as someone who's in appraising, but something else. So the hardest part of growing the business is figuring out how to replace yourself. So that was the hardest part for me. So in the beginning, I did everything. So every day I had a checklist of what I needed to do. Some of it was accounting stuff. Some of it was compliance stuff. Some of it was HR stuff. Some of it was legal stuff. Some of it was sales stuff, administrative stuff. And in the beginning, you know, you're kind of doing all of that, right? and making sure that things are done and you're outsourcing what you can outsource. Uh, the hardest part for me was figuring out when it went from something I could do after hours or before work or during work to where it needed to be a full-time position because that is a constant evolution. On top of that, the second hardest part that everybody business struggled with is knowing when to replace the person that you hired to fulfill that one-time position and get them and get somebody better, right? Like now we're at the position to where, and I think a lot of business owners struggle with this. We won't hire somebody now unless they've done it before for a company larger than us, right? Whereas Previously, we would hire people that, you know, this is the best office person. So now she's the office manager. And oh, by the way, she's also the one person that, you know, knows and has a little bit of a legal background. So now she's our HR manager. And the reality is, is that the per- she was never, you know, this person was never qualified. And a lot of business owners, or this is the guy who, who ran sales, and started to, you know, got our first 10 or 15 clients and now is our national sales director. And it's like, no, he's really not qualified to be a national sales director for a $40 million company because he's never done it. Can you give us an example of like an exact person? Or, you know, you don't tell us a person name or a position, you know? Yeah. So, so there's so many examples. So it's not one person. It's pretty much everybody, honestly. I mean, because you will have people that will grow. So there's there's guys that we have now that have been with the company for eight or nine years, our first employee and our second employee still work for the company. And they've grown into separate positions. But those positions, uh, we've hired people past them that are their bosses, right? So they stopped at a certain level. And then we've had people who have gone on to become great. And then we've had people who have really done detriment to the company because they weren't replaced fast enough. And generally, those are the people that came in that served a purpose at the time, whether they're salesperson, compliance, accounting, legal. And then when the company grows, the accounting gets too complicated. The compliance gets too complicated. The legal gets too complicated. They're not able to do the operations. You know, there's completely difference between setting up a call center with 10 people and then setting up one with 50. It's a completely different skill set. How do you figure out when that person, because let's say, you know, I'm a couple of years into my business. Uh, I don't know if you, when's the first time you figured this out and how did you figure it out? Like a person need to be replaced that they're good for three people, but not for 10 or 15. So it starts with the leader um, having clarity on the vision. So that is probably the, it, it is ultimately the leader's fault. 100 percent time that happens. And it's centered around clarity of the vision first. And so the way I found out previously is completely different the way that I would do it now. In the beginning, I was not as clear 
on expectations for people and really measuring the results. Because as an entrepreneur, you're constantly stuck with the question of you're still trying to figure it out anyway, right? Like you're stuck with the idea of you're still trying to figure out. So you're going to give a little bit of grace to people who are still trying to figure it out, right? That is not the way to operate. You're hiring somebody because of their expertise. They are a call center manager, right? And you got to think in your head that I'm hiring this person for the vision, to execute on the vision with my help, right? We're all here to work on the team together, but they ultimately have to be competent in executing the vision. And if they're not able to do it with fairly little direction, you probably have the wrong person where you really have to have that gut. And that doesn't mean you need to let the person go today, right? That doesn't mean you need to let the person go. That doesn't mean that they're a bad person. That just means that this person's either needing to be really developed and trained which I may or may not have the ability to do, or I have to hire a consultant to help them and show them what needs to be done, which they may or may not have the ability to execute, or I'm going to have to replace this person. And that conversation, a lot of entrepreneurs avoid because they're still thinking in their head, well, I'm still making mistakes every day. And not that you wouldn't give your employees some leeway, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs overcompensate for that. At least I did. At least I did. I, I, I used to let people make more, more mistakes than I would now. What's been the one thing that you think has like led to your growth as a company? Consistency. That, that was displayed kind of in, in the beginning. And again, I keep harping to the beginning because that, that's probably where a lot of our listeners are at. Maybe they started their company. Maybe they have a couple of people working for them want to take the next step. Can you really just jump in and dive in more about like going from one person to, I don't know, did you have five people working for you and, and steps along the way? Yeah. So, so you want to, that, that's a fun phase. And if you do it right, you can blast through that phase. And what I did is different than what I would tell somebody to do, because what I did ultimately ended up to the same end result of what I'd tell somebody to do, but it took a lot longer. So I had to learn through a lot of mistake. All right, let's hear the both. Yeah, we want to hear both. So, so both. So originally, my whole focus was uh, to hire salespeople. And what ended up happening is I would train a whole bunch of salespeople that would get me out in the market. And this is from growing at the company. Because a lot of entrepreneurs don't like ground and pound sales pain, you know, it's just a tough gig, you know, just ground and pound every day, making the cold calls, you know, that's just tough to do. A lot of that is what they want to get rid of first. They hire an admin and then they want to get rid of the sales thing. Uh, I made that same mistake. It eventually led to us hiring administrative people and me supporting the sales. Uh, I mean, me doing primarily sales and then hiring administrative people to handle a lot of the day-to-day functions like, you know, a sales support, you know, setting up users so that I was optimized to get to that next level. Okay. So, so the first two mistakes were one, I didn't hire administrative people to cover for some of the stuff in the office. And I spent, I didn't spend enough time on sales. The second mistake was once I did have the administrative people, you got to get them really organized. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do that as well because simple tasks to an entrepreneur, simple tasks to an employee are two different things because they don't see the whole picture all the time. That's largely a part of the entrepreneur not explaining the vision and the detail of the job fully, right? But the mistake that I made was not being completely clear with written documentation as to exactly the way that I wanted everything done. And now, you know, we have that in place. 
and it makes the biggest difference in the world. And I was what I see the biggest mistake, and I and I and I have a brother who owns a national title company that you know we talk to him. I talk to him about this way, and they're and they're doing well. Their startup phase is getting those policies and procedures in place, those job descriptions, the task checklist. You know, the the first thing that I now ask people, if I ever ask them, you know, they ever ask me to look at their stuff or talk, I say, okay, give me the job description, policy procedures, task checklist, and workflows for the current positions you have, because that's going to determine who you can hire next. Most entrepreneurs avoid that because they're smaller and they think, well, I have Becky, who's an administrative person. And I have John, who's my assistant. And I have this person who's kind of like my ops person and I'm the salesperson. Okay, well, what are they responsible for? They have job description. They have a task checklist so that on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, you can review so that if they need to move to another position or if somebody else needs to step in, they can just do it with a, with a seamless transition and not like, oh, well, John didn't show up today. Nobody knows how to do anything. Uh, and I think young, entrepreneurs don't realize that those fundamental disciplines enable you to grow the business organized, organically, and without a lot of mistakes. Now, you'll still grow the business. So the, the funny thing is, and what I realized is that a good entrepreneur, somebody who's good in sales or somebody who's good at running their business will still grow the business without that stuff. It'll just be painful along the way. At what point did you realize you needed to do that? Did you read something that, hey, maybe I should start documenting things? And then how did you actually document those things? I mean, were you put in a Word doc? Were you writing them down? How was that going? So it's one of those things to where it's never ending, right? So it started off with just frustration and not having certain things done. So, you know, no different than probably what you deal with is you have a client that says, hey, it's really important for me to deal with this. Or you have a customer that says, this is our major pain point. And so you go back to your employees and you kind of sell them, okay, we're going to make sure we're the best at this. And then, you know, you forget that this is the one of 10 things that you told them that day. Right. They forget it. And then all of a sudden now, that one client that you just got that you said this would never happen, of course, that happened right away, right? And so you just deal with so much frustration that you say, okay, well, you know, I've read the Michael Gerber e-myth and you read, you know, all the business books and they all talk about, well, you got to get documentation, you got to make franchise, you've got to do this. And then when I see the successful companies that I know and other entrepreneurs that I, ha I know, the backbone of what they're doing is that it is not necessarily if the process is right or wrong. It's just that things are documented and employees are organized. They're an organized force. And there's different methods and different standards around it. But I've been interviewing with a lot of companies and all of those CEOs have that. How did you do it? I mean, were you just like, you got frustrated, obviously, at one point. Did you just like, hey, I'm going to start writing these in Word docs? Like, yeah, so it literally came down to, I pulled up Lucid charts on one day and I said, okay, well, what is my responsibility on a daily basis? And I made little bubbles with kind of like what I'm responsible for on a daily basis. And then I put in, okay, well, what is my ops manager responsible for on a daily basis? And then what is my accounting person? What is my compliance person? And this is when the company was really small. So it was only like five or six people. And I would put in their roles and responsibilities. And then that led into, okay, I need to, and this is all me doing it. This is not me hiring a call to them. This is not anything. I need to write job descriptions for these people. So they need to have job descriptions that core in line with this. Okay. And then task checklists so that they make sure we do what they do. And the task checklist is just like a 
one pager that basically goes into uh, what you're, you know, every day you're supposed to open up by 8 a.m. You're supposed to check that there's fresh coffee. You're supposed to make sure that there's snacks in the thing. I mean, can that be as simple as that or as complicated as you know, every day you're supposed to check P&L, you're supposed to check cash available balances, you're supposed to check receivables cleared last night, you know, checks that were returned for, uh, you know, our direct deposits that returned for correct, incorrect accounting information. So whatever it is, it's just a simple thing. And you start putting those together and then you just make it a part of the culture. That when you're correcting behavior, and this is important, that when I, if you work for me and I correct and you, and I said, hey, you know, Austin, you're supposed to make 50 phone calls a day as a salesperson. You see this in your job description? It says 50 phone calls a day. You made 40 yesterday. And it is what it is because I understand you're busy, but I just want to make sure you were clear on that because 50 is an important number for us to hit our target of 200 a week or something like that. Well, this is perfect. This is what I want from you. Like exactly like the details on how you figured it out, like in that transition you made. So how many people were in the company when you started doing that? And what year did you start doing? So it, it's continual. So it's sort of like the more organ. So, so that, is, you know, it sounds simple to do, right? Right. It's not fun though, right? It's a mountain to try and accomplish. Yeah. So some of those things take a really long time and it's it's a lot of mental energy. Mm-hmm. And so it's just been a continual thing. So what really started to take shape is the more you do it, this is not something where as an entrepreneur, I would say, well, I'm just going to knock it out over the weekend and then I'm going to be done with it. And that's not like that. This is you crafting your company and crafting your vision for your company. So what ends up happening is you write your first job descriptions, you, you leave it alone, you end up not implementing them. And then six months later, you have another problem. Right. And then you redo it a second time and then you redo it a third time and then a fourth time and a fifth time. And then by then you've actually built it up to where your employees now have clarity and you have clarity. Generally speaking, it comes out of clarity. Mm-hmm. So you want to have it very clear to your employees what they want to do. Because you, you just think about this, right? Like the mental game. Most people enjoy working and they want to do a good job. Okay. So like most entrepreneurs have the reverse idea of what their problem, the root cause of their problems are. They think like, well, this person forgets, you know, this person might be a little lazy. You know, it's hard to be an entrepreneur. It's hard to run a business. It's hard to do this. Gosh, it's so tough. I guess the kind of common theme among entrepreneurs and the reality is that's not the reality is that most entrepreneurs do a really bad job of being clear to their employees and are very unorganized compared to what most employees environmentally are used to working on, working with when you talk of bigger companies. If you went and worked at Burger King at the most basic level, they have everything documented, everything policy and procedure. They had every tying possible thing that you could possibly have. Well, why did they have that at Burger King when somebody making $11 an hour and you know, let's say your design company or your you know real estate company or whatever company, you don't have those things in place and people are dealing with million dollar deals. And so it's like, well, my people are bad. They don't do it. No, the entrepreneur is the one who needs fix. Where do you think you would be without doing this if you didn't do the checklist? Because you said that sounds like that was your number one thing that's led to your growth. Well, it's not just that. It's just to focus on being organized. Right. Focus on being organized and really running a business rather than it being based around 
whatever's next on your plate. Yeah, or whatever's next on your plate or kind of taking things here and there. I would say the biggest thing that has been led to the success uh, of the company by far, it has nothing to do with the task, task checklist or job description or anything. It's just the persistence, willing to fail, willing to do the tough things that nobody wants to do over and over and over again to the point to where you become really good at it. You know, it really comes down to just blue collar, nothing sexy. You know, this sucks. Let me just knock it out over the weekend. Let me just do it myself. And then let me find the right people to do it over time. Let me be crafty and figuring out a way to outsource it, maybe uh, India over the weekend or something like that. Was there a point in time dealing with that when you're saying the willing to persist where you're like, you almost didn't feel like persisting or you're just like, is it even worth me still growing my own business? Can you tell us about any of that? Oh, I have it all the time. I have it all the time. So that's a normal thing. And that's a very normal thing. And what'll happen is it'll get bigger. The stakes, as the company gets bigger, it'll get bigger and bigger. The stakes will get bigger and bigger. The problems will get bigger and bigger. And what you'll find out is all the big companies that you're competing against deal with the same exact thing that you're dealing with. They're just more efficient and effective at handling them, right? So the same thing, you know, if you lose a deal to another customer, another competitor, all your competitors deal with that. The bigger companies just have a better way of responding. How do you personally deal with it? So what I look for is the habits that created the issue. And then the root cause of saying, okay, is this something that just kind of happens, right? Like, you know, you losing a deal, you getting a competitor to, you know, outprice you or outsell you, or they just better were better that day. That happens. So let's just chalk that up to playing the game. The second one is, okay, is there actually something that we could have done better that really was the reason that we we failed? And if that's the case, then you have nothing to be ashamed of. You should just fix it. And if it happens a second, third time, then you just, you know, you might as well just not compete because you're not going to be able to come to win. And so what I look at when I have those kind of failures is, you know, I lost a deal. I'll never forget this. This is when we were first getting out getting going. And there was a company and I was being lazy. The guy says, well, Hey, why don't you meet with me? I'm available later today or tomorrow morning. And it was for a new customer that wanted to order appraisals for us in this bank in Tyson's corner of Virginia. And traffic is, is really a pain in this area. So it was already like 1231 o'clock. So if I, it would take like an hour to get there in traffic, even though it's like 10 minutes away, I mean, 10 miles away and it took an hour and a half to get back. So like I wouldn't be back at six. Forget it. The next day I go in the morning and one of our competitors actually went that day and took the deal for me. Mm-hmm. Like that day. And I'm just, and it ended up being a great account for many years for that guy. And I just always think of myself because I drive out of that building all the time. I just, if you lazy ass would have gotten up and just gotten the car, you'd have been home, you know, by the six and you'd have gotten the deal. And so when things happen to you like that a lot, what you do is you end up building in systems. Now our salespeople know if they get somebody who's interested, I don't care if it's a thousand dollar flight, you get on the next flight, you go to the airport, then you get on the next flight and you're there. So what's your systems that you use today as far as like you're talking about being organized and the sales guys keeping track of them? What type of programs and instruments do you use? Uh, Salesforce.com. So so Salesforce.com to measure things. And then actually what we have is 135s, which are, they're very effective and there's nothing to do with technology. So we have Salesforce. We have a very robust Salesforce system. It's built out to the max. We have everything you could possibly have widget-wise, whether it's Ring Central stuff, but that's not actually that most effective. The most effective thing that we have 
or is just two pieces of paper. One is the 135 that all of our salespeople have, and the second is uh, their 125 list, right? And what, what's 135? Okay, 135 is you have one target goal. So let's say, for instance, Austin, your job, your goal is to be the number one podcaster interview in the, in the United States of America. Okay, so that's your goal. And then what are, that's your one ultimate goal. What are three target goals beyond, below that, that you can you can hit, whether that's number one in the US, whether that's, you know, 8,000 subscribers and whether that's, you know, whatever that number is. And then what are five daily activities that you're going to do every day for each of those three goals that you're going to do every single day to knock out the three goals that'll lead to your one goal, right? So, so for a salesperson, it would be, you know, my goal is to generate, a million in orders in revenue on a monthly basis. I'm going to do that by hitting, you know, two new accounts per month that send in 50,000 units or 50,000 in revenue. Uh, hit up old, you know, three old accounts per month that send in 25,000 in revenue and add X and Y Z accounts. That's going to, by the end of the year, I have that number. And then here are the five things I'm going to do every day to hit that, whether it's phone calls, emails, visits, you know, whatever, you know, blog posts, whatever it is. So that is the way we manage our sales team now. So all of them have that. And so anytime I go to them and I say, okay, are you on your goal or you're off your goal? Give me your one, three, five. Are you doing your daily activities? Or are you doing and just getting me the result? Because if you're getting me the result, I'll just take it. Like if you're just number one, you're number one. I'll just take it. Right. You got to give me one or the other. You got to give me the activity or you got to give me the results. Mm-hmm. You got to give me one. Yeah. And then the 125 list is important in the sense of a focus, right? So you're in, you know, real estate, right? So, and then also, you know, with the podcasting and stuff. So it's like, okay, the 125 list is the list of the 125 prospects that are in your market that meet your criteria. So we're very selective when you were very targeted when it comes to the type of client we want, right? Because we got to make sure not all, and I'm sure you've dealt with, not all the clients are created equal. Right. No. <laughs> right. And so, you know, there's some that are pain in the butt. Some have a really good reputation. Some are just loss leaders. Some are just name accounts. Some are going to make a lot of money off of. Some are going to, you know, you just have these right. And so the second most important thing they have in that we manage our sales team is the 125 list, which is 125 accounts that they have in their market that they are prospecting in or current clients that meet the minimum criteria for a current client as defined by us. It doesn't matter what you define it as. You just need to come up with some ideal scenario. Mm-hmm. And then they have five point of contacts at each of those accounts that they just work. So the idea is with those two, I have a list of my 125 accounts with five point of contacts at each account. And then I have my daily activity sheet. I can rock it exactly what to do. I need to call people on this list, visit the people on this list, email people on this list, to close deals. And here's the frequency to which I do it, which I have it on my one, three, five. Nice. Like I said, I think keeping it simple like that, I think it's smart. When you went to Salesforce, because I've heard mixed reviews. We're using this other CRM before because, yeah, it's great. Once you get to it, it seems, seems like a business your size, but like making that shift in technology said we have people you keep telling us how important sales are. And I think a lot of the other people that we've interviewed have said the same. But how about making that transition in technology? Ultimately, technology gives you a competitive advantage if you're doing the fundamentals right. Right. Uh, it's a huge waste of time if you're not doing the fundamentals. You can build a, you know, up until 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, there's billion billion dollar companies that have been built with no CRM. Right. Right. So the CRM itself is sort of useless in the sense of if you're not doing the right things. Now, if you're doing the right things, 
Salesforce can greatly enhance your already, but I don't think there's a big difference. I mean, for a starter, right? Like, and I've looked at almost all of them. For a starter, there's benefits to going with somebody smaller because they give you a little more flexibility on the tech side, like companies like Zoho, my brother uses, and they have some things that Salesforce just doesn't allow you to do because it's too, so there's limit. You, know, you can't email 50,000 people on Salesforce. You can only email 5,000. Yeah. So Zoho, let you email as many as you want. So there's limitations that Salesforce.com has. But then also at the same time, if you want to develop something serious, Zoho is not the one for you because it doesn't have built out APIs. It doesn't have built out things that you really need. So you, you want to balance the two. Generally speaking, there are CRMs in most niche markets, right? Whether you're in the mortgage industry or if you're in real estate or if you're in uh, insurance sales that are pretty good out of the box. And I would kind of start there because you want to keep your barrier for entry. You want to realize the CRM is a tool. It's not going to make you successful. It's going to greatly help if you're doing the right things anyway. And then just start with a low cost entry level get your feet wet because you're going to have to redo it so many times anyway that if you end up having to switch systems, it's not a big lift because all the CRMs will basically pay for you to switch knowing you're going to be on it for a while. Yeah. And I think that that goes back to your talking about the 135 and the 125 list prospects. Those seems like the basics and then, you know, that keeps you running. We want to focus on, so one of the things that I've, and I'm sure you've dealt with this too, Austin, is that you want to avoid, people like to get sexy because sex is easy, right? People like to get, you know, sophisticated. You know, I'm doing my social media. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm doing this. When it comes to running a business or sales or anything, and they think technology is the result. And, and generally speaking, technology is very helpful, but you want to stick really to the fundamentals. Like what would be boring to everybody is probably the most effective thing. Oh, it sounds like it. I mean, based on how you've been able to grow your company doing that, what, five times, five different things, five times a day in the beginning. So I guess kind of in closing, what other words of advice would you have someone who's you know trying to grow their business to your size, especially in the beginning? So to just get started and to really focus on uh, who you're becoming every day, because ultimately, and who you're surrounding yourself with every day, because ultimately, as an entrepreneur, your job is you're, you're the quarterback, so your job is not to do anything with the ball, but to give the ball to the right person. And the success of your company will ultimately be determined by who you have on your team that you can hand the ball off to, right? If you look at the NFL quarterbacks, there's never been an NFL quarterback who is a runner, who does everything himself, who is able to win the championships year after year. It's the guys who have really good people on their team. Use them effectively. Uh, any of the problems you're experiencing when you have multiple employees could be taken care of by a competent employee. And you need to kind of think that out of your back of your mind. That who do I have? Who am I surrounding myself with? And then as you kind of grow up to a certain extent in the business world, you should be really actively looking to surround yourself with people who are quality people who have already done it. How did you figure that out for yourself? Was there a point in time that you realized, hey, um, I'm not surrounding myself with people who are making me grow? Well, you just, yeah, yeah. So, so you, what you end up realizing is that you naturally start meeting people and, you, you know, people ask for advice, people... You, you talk to them, uh, you start realizing there's people that just have done it and have much more competent answers. Mm -hmm. And once you start interacting with them and you start taking their advice, your company changes and the people around you change and the culture changes and all these other things change. And that leads to 
been better employees. It's sort of like a success begets success. But what happens is, is that you find out when you implement some of the better ideas, you know, it can be on a blog post that you get the idea. It doesn't have to be somebody in person. You meet little to no resistance, right? It just kind of flows better. Well, like I said, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. If someone wanted to say thanks, what's the best way for them to reach out and say that to you? Uh, you can email me, bcoaster at coaster, C-O-E-S-T-E-R, V-M-S, and it's victormichaelsmith.com. All right, Brian. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, buddy. YOLO and hola. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed it and want to show us a little support, then we would love for you to leave us a five-star review. It helps other potential listeners enjoy this fabulous show just like you. And it'll take less than 69 seconds to do it, I promise. And if you're looking for more episodes that are dealing with the real estate industry, then try out episode 15 with Jillian Hellman or episode 21 with Bill Lyons or upcoming episode 30 with Steve Wang. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you next episode. Oh,